This morning we come to Matthew 3. We will look at Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming from, for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is a herald? A herald is a messenger of the king, the voice of the king. When the herald speaks... It is as if the king speaks. He announces the coming of the king. He speaks with authority. Here in our passage we have John the Baptist. John was born around the same time as Jesus. He is born specifically for this role. To be a herald of the coming of the king. As we come to this text, we will see four different things. I know. Calm down. I didn't say three. The world is still on its axis. But we have four different things I want us to see. First, we will see John's appearance. Second, we will see John's message. Third, we will see John's rebuke. And finally, we will see John's gospel. So let's begin by looking at his appearance He is, as the text says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was the one foretold by the prophet Isaiah. But as we see him, we see that John is in the wilderness. He appears in the wilderness. He is in the desert. From the desert we see the voice of the prophet come. We know that there has been no prophet in all of Israel for some 450 years. And his location reminds us of Israel wandering after they left Egypt. It is the place where Israel was purged of their sins. It was a common thought in John's day 
that the Messiah would come from the desert. The wilderness had long been a place for the prophets of God. We know Elijah sojourned in the desert. He took refuge in the desert. But as we see John's location, we see that it suggests a new exodus is about to take place. That a new purging of sin is coming. John cries from the wilderness, from the desert. But his, uh, his appearance in his location is not the only thing that is important. His appearance, as in his physical appearance, is also poor, important. It says here in verse 4 that John wore garments of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. This was the typical garments of the poor. Camel, camel hair in this region was plenty. But this is also a specific reference. Isaiah tells us that a prophet will come like Elijah. Elijah wore camel hair. We see here, even as we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, that Matthew is building a case for Christ. John the Baptist fulfills prophecy that one would come who would be like Elijah. This sign would have been unmistakable to any Jew who knew their scriptures. But not only his garment, but his diet. He ate locust and wild honey. Again, these are things accessible to the poor. He ate bugs, locusts, and wild honey. And again, this is spoken by Isaiah, of the prophet Elijah, that he would come in this way, that he would come from the desert, that he would come clothed in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey. He comes as the prophet of God. Something that would have been startling to the Jews of the day. Knowing that there has been silence for all these hundreds of years. So that is John's appearance. But we now must see his message. This is what the people came to hear. The message of the prophet. In his message we see in verse 2. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. What is repentance? Some view repentance as merely a feeling of sorrow. Sorrow for something we did or something we failed to do. Others view repentance as a change of mind. I will change from one thing to another thing. And this is roughly true. But it misses so much. It involves more than just the mind. It involves a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of action. John here gives us the reason for repentance. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Lord is coming. And as we go through, we'll see that as the Lord comes, judgment comes with him. John is urging his hearers to be ready. If, you, if the, his hearers have been unfaithful, they must return to the Lord. 
So then what is the nature of true repentance? Repentance may include sorrow that we've hurt someone. But we can certainly sin against someone without hurting them. Repentance is also more than sorrow that we've hurt ourselves. Repentance is more than remorse over shameful actions and behavior. Certainly, people are remorseful when they get caught. We've all, if you have children, you've caught them lying, right? Ashton. (laughs) She's trying not to look at me. And they have that look on their face, right? Did you do that? No. Yes, you did. And you get caught. And why are you sorry? Are you sorry that you did it? Or are you sorry that you got caught? We think of Bill Clinton, right? Was he sorry that he did it? Was he sorry that he got caught doing it? We think of many political figures this way. We think of uh, Jim Baker as another one. Was he sorry that he did it? Or was he sorry that he got caught? Repentance is more than just feeling sorry that we got caught. Self-condemnation is not repentance. This is just another form of selfishness. So then what is right, sorrowful repentance? In worldly sorrow, the sinner feels bad for himself, his pain, his shame, his damaged reputation or relationships. But godly sorrow, the sinner wants to feel justice done and wants to have a restored relationship first with God and then with our fellow man. The larger catechism, question 76, answers this, asks this very question. What is repentance unto life? And this is the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for, for and hates his sin, as that he turns from all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him, in all the ways of new obedience. We see that true repentance, godly repentance, is wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit together with the Word of God. We come with a recognition of our sin, and I love the words here, with an understanding of the filthiness and the odiousness of our sins. But it's not only this, it's coming with an understanding of God's mercy in Christ. It's come, coming and turning to new obedience. I remember my grandmother, and this is not completely, I think, accurate, but I think it's a beautiful picture. When we were, we were kids and we'd do something, we'd say, I'm sorry, Grandma, I'm sorry I did that. She said, don't say sorry unless if you're going to do it again. And of course, I I think that's a a wrong picture, but there is some truth in that. That it's not about just repenting, it's about turning to new obedience. And of course, we all know the error in it is 
that we're constantly sinning, aren't we? And so we are to constantly be repenting. But if we come and we're sorry, but we have no intention of turning to new obedience, it is not true repentance. True repentance. Spirit-guided repentance. Repentance unto life is not just a regular turning from sin after a specific act, but a once-for-all repentance. The kind of turning from an old way of life to a new way of life. This is the repentance John speaks of. The penitent man grieves that he has offended God. The penitent man knows that God is merciful. They know that true repentance entails an inconstant endeavor to walk with God in obedience. Unless the Spirit enlightens us, we will never see that sin is rebellion against God. But the penitent have a sense of the filth, of the odiousness, of the danger of sin. John, here in Matthew, is warning, is cautioning his hearers to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this message is no less true for us today. There may, we may can put a slight twist on it. The kingdom of God is here. It has come. It came in the person of Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. The kingdom of God is now. But the call is no different. Repent. Repent. I, I, I love movies. And a movie that I haven't watched in a long time, but The, the Matrix. I don't know if you've ever seen The Matrix. It came out, oh, so many years ago. But there were some really interesting religious themes in the Matrix. And at one point, Morpheus talking to Neo says this. You are here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. There's something wrong with this world. It's like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. Do you know what I'm talking about? The world has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Neo responds by saying, what truth? And Morpheus says that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison. This movie, they have it partly right. True repentance is more than just a feeling that something is terribly wrong with the world. However great our sense of sin, however great our sense of brokenness, the repentant must have an apprehension, a knowledge of the mercy of God in Christ. Yes, they must have hatred of their sin and grieve over it. To not yield to despair. But a striving after God in a faithful and obedient life. There is something wrong with this world. This world blinds us from truth. We are indeed slaves to sin. We are slaves to death. But we have been bought out of this. 
and to marvelous life. And we must come in repentance. So then how was John's message received? It would have been easy for John's message to go unnoticed. He was in the desert away from civilization. But the Spirit was stirring the people and preparing them for Christ. They saw signs that they would have been familiar with. His clothing, his diet. And Matthew tells us that people from all over Jerusalem, all over Judea, came out to hear his message. And they came out to be baptized. Now John's baptism is not the baptism of Jesus. This would soon come, but we're not there yet. There are several ways that we can see John's baptism. In Jewish law, there was ritual cleansings. There's many instances of this in the Old Testament when a person would have been ceremonial, ceremonially washed so that they would be considered or not be considered unclean. There was also an instance of baptism with the conversion of a Gentile. When a Gentile sought to become a Jew, they had to be baptized to signify their coming into a new community. There's one thing that both of these point to, and that is the need to be clean. The people were coming out and acknowledging the fact that they were unclean. They needed repentance. They had turned from God. They needed to be made clean and acceptable before him. Even in John's baptism, he is preaching the message of repentance. And these were willing to come to be made right with God. But there are others who come who do not want this. And so we see our our third point, John's rebuke. Starting in verse 7, it says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who wearied you to flee from the wrath to come? They were coming out to observe his ministry. They came not to listen or to repent, but to investigate. Just like the religious religious leaders throughout the Old Testament, as the prophets came, They did not heed the words that they heard. And John gives them a tongue lashing in essence. He he begins by calling them a brood of vipers. We know that snakes are shrewd, deceptive, and dangerous. It is even said that Arabian vipers will chew their way out of their mother's womb, killing their mother in the process. This, in essence, was not meant to be a compliment, to say the least. Vipers, snakes, seek to destroy. This is what they were coming to do. They were coming to judge this prophet. And John warns them, flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They are in need of a change of heart. Their life must reflect the repentance that John is calling them to. None are excluded from this, from this judgment that is coming. He tells them, not even the fact that you have Abraham as your father will exclude you. Just because you are descended from Abraham does not mean you are saved. 
God, in essence, John says, is not impressed by your lineage. No one can avoid God's judgment because of their ancestors. I think in the South we get a sense of this. When you go around and you ask people, where do you go to church? Everyone has an answer, almost without exclusion. I'd be interested to know after they told you what church, if you could ask them what their pastor of that church name was. Because some have not darkened the door in 15, 20 years. They think because their parents went there that they're okay. But John tells them God will raise these very stones to be children of Abraham. If the Sadducees and the Pharisees don't fulfill the role rightly, their lineage will not protect them. John says, even now an axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There is an urgency in John's message. It is not as if the axeman is on the way to get the axe or that he's working on sharpening the axe. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. It is ready to be cut down. There is an urgency in the repentance. And the tree that does not bear fruit will be chopped down and removed. Judgment is now. It is not far off. Do not put off repentance, John is saying. Do not think that you can wait till tomorrow, till the next day, till five years from now, from ten years from now. The axe is even now laid to the root of the tree. If you do not bear good fruit, then you will be cut down. John is warning his hearers. He is warning us to turn now to not put off repentance. But John concludes his message with both a message of good news and a message of warning. And this is our last point, John's gospel. God concludes, or John, excuse me, concludes by delivering the message he was sent to deliver. There is one coming who is mightier than me. I am not even worthy to carry his sandals. John concludes by turning away from himself and pointing to Christ. He is not even worthy to do such a menial task as carry his sandals. Jesus is supreme to John. When Jesus comes, the kingdom will come with him. He is great. He is mighty. And he will do two things. He is coming to clean the threshing floor. And he will pull out all that are his. He will take the wheat out. He is drawing his sons and daughters to himself. But the chaff he will burn up. This is imagery that we're not unfamiliar with. The dividing from the wheat and the tares. John again in his gospel message of Christ, is warning and urging the need of repentance. 
Repentance is the theme of his message. And in scripture, we can see that repentance is used largely in four ways. First, it is used as a desire to forsake wickedness and move to a more noble life. But turning away from certain sins without necessarily turning to God. You can strive to drink less or to sin less or whatever you want to insert there to steal less or to cheat less. But if you don't turn to God in doing that, it is not a godly life. Second scripture uses it as saving conversion, a sorrow for sin that leads away from sin and towards God. Which leads to our third use, the way of life that follows the definitive act of repenting and believing in the Lord. This is a radical break daily with our sin and a daily turning to God in repentance. If repentance is our way of life, we search for and forsake our sins one by one as the Spirit Spirit gives us grace to see them. This is a repentance that takes time, but it has to be the foundation of the Christian life. Habitual sins blind us so that the truly penitent person may labor for years to break deeply ingrained habits. We are to live our life turning daily to Christ. Yes, repentance is the once saving conversion, but it's also a daily thing. And then finally, repentance is used to mean the occasion when a redeemed man or woman or even a church returns to God after a season of cold and lifeless light. This passage is calling us First, to repent of our sins and to turn, of God, turn to God. It is urging every man and woman and child to be reconciled to God by repenting of their sins daily. And it comes to us and says, yes, you may be religious people, you Sadducees, you Pharisees. But if you have been in a time of coldness, turn again to your first love. The biblical message of repentance summons every Christian to live a life of daily repentance. The church should be a body of penitent believers who grieve over sin and turn to Christ, always repenting. We will never get to a place in our Christian walk where we are not in need of repentance. So I urge you, Do you know Christ? If you do not, then turn to him in repentance. If you do know Christ, then repent daily of the sins that are so easily ensnaring you. And maybe you know Christ, but you have grown cold. You have grown lifeless. And I urge you, turn once again to him. Turn and confess in repentance. John comes as one foretold in the Old Testament. 
This reflects in his appearance. He brings us the message of repentance. We must repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is for us now. We must not be like the Jewish leaders and come like a brood of vipers, like fruitless trees waiting to be cut down. But we are to come, knowing that there is one greater than John. There is one greater than us, the very Son of God, who seeks to be reconciled with us. Brothers and sisters, I leave you with the message of John. Repent. Repent for the first time. Repent for the hundredth time. Repent daily. For the kingdom of God is now. Christ has come. Let's pray. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, it is not fun or to talk about repentance over and over again, Lord, and yet we know that we are in need of it. We are reminded daily of the sin in our lives. Lord, but we know that we have been bought, that the new man has, is now here. May we die to the old and live to the new daily by repenting and turning to you. May we not grow cold and lifeless. May we not rest on our laurels, but may we continually and daily rest in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.